welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And this week, Marianne will be speaking with Jimmy Videli, who is actually making it happen. Vegan farming. No shit. I mean, literally, no shit. Marianne, that was funny. You wrote that. I just want to give credit. That was funny. No more feed crops. No more factory farming. No more so-called humane eggs. None of it. Just delicious fruits and vegetables with no animal inputs. This is the way the world should be. And Jimmy, who recently published his amazing how-to guide, The Veganic Grower's Handbook, Cultivating Fruits, Vegetables, and Herbs from Urban Backyard to Rural Farmyard, intends to change the way we eat and where we get our food. I am fascinated by the subject of veganic farming. Uh, I, this is bad. I just realized your sound is not coming through my, through my earphones possibly because my earphones are not plugged into my computer. Can we leave that in, please? <laughs> I just really want to leave that in. I just don't know how that I just don't know how that will affect the sound. I apologize. It's okay. Let's keep going. Word to the audience in order to hear things through your earphones, you have to plug them in. Oh. Oh, okay. You know what? You know well, what? We, we don't we, always, you know, like they have those the Bluetooth ones. We've never explicitly said that. No. So So it's under- understandable that I would have made that mistake. Right. Now we have. Now we have. Anyway, <laughs> veganic farming is working much better than our brains today. Uh, and I love this subject so much. In fact, it's so freaky to me that like, you know, all of the organic produce that I buy is shitty like yeah, literally, literally. And, yeah. and it's you know the other day I got this is disgusting I don't know why I'm saying it but here I go I got grapes the other day from Whole Foods organic grapes and they they still smelled like shit I find that hard to believe I think you made that up no it's true it they they smelled like sh- they it was disgusting but anyway I know you loved this interview. Yeah, I love this interview. It's so it's you know it's so much easier to listen to how people farm than to actually do it. I love to watch gardening shows and listen to people who grow food. Interestingly, there's this new movie out, and it talks about shit also, and and it talks about growing food, and it makes it clear that it's not only your organic food where they use manure as as you know a fertilizer that has. Uh, is is has a shit problem but it's non-organic too uh this movie is amazing completely amazing it's on netflix if you're a subscriber it's called poisoned the dirty truth about your food we all have to watch it the day i watched it it was number 10 in the most watched things on netflix so this is really this is really hitting the mainstream and as I said, it, it makes clear, you know, it isn't just about meat. It, it's about food poisoning, like really serious food poisoning, the kind people die from, etc. And it isn't just about meat and dairy. But when it talks about things like lettuce, particularly romaine lettuce, it makes clear that the reason it is infected with E. coli is because it, all of the lettuce is grown in places actually two places in the country, Yuma, Arizona, and, and the Salinas Valley in California. And they're, they're next to, to feedlots. I mean, they show the film, and, and that's why there's so much food poisoning. Romaine lettuce is probably the most dangerous food you can buy. I mean, it's a tragedy. They're wrecking vegetables. And it's not just about that. It's also about, um, you know, meat and, and poultry and 
and the absolute literal bullshit that goes on in in this industry about this issue. Nothing about the animals, but there's enough film of the animals in there that I would think that anybody with even the the a glimpse of a heart would be disturbed by it. Everybody's got to watch this. I mean, in a, and if you really don't want to watch it, at least just turn it on so that the numbers go up. So it keeps being one of the most popular things on Netflix. Mm. If other people watch it. Yeah. It's really, really good. You texted me right after you watched it and you were like, I'm never eating lettuce again. And I, I was, with, I know you won't, but I was with more at the time. And I said that, and she was like, I'm not watching it. And, <laughs> and then you said, you specified that specifically you meant packaged and like that made more very happy because she prefers to just not, you know, to just get like, the head. no, they said, if you're going to buy lettuce to buy the head and probably if you're buying organic, I don't really know, but if you're buying organic, well, there's manure used as fertilizer, but it's not from these from these huge, huge fields that are right next to feedlots. So they did make clear that organic is no safe route. Also, and they didn't go into the details on on these two foods, which was really bad. But sprouts, which you know most of us know about, sprouts can can definitely be a problem. And cantaloupe, cantaloupe. I love cantaloupe. Don't eat cantaloupe. Oh God, Lord. I don't know, Marianne. This is very sad. Well, watch the movie. Don't blame me. Don't blame me. Okay. Just go call Jimmy Vidaly and say you you want him to send you food because it's it's the only place to get it. <laughs> this movie is absolutely terrifying. And they they keep saying over and over and over, quoting all of these people, that America has the safest food supply in the world. And it's like completely and totally not true. I mean, nobody thinks it's true. They just say it all the time. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, you know, I know our listeners and I know that there are at least a few listeners right now who are going to our show notes and clicking on it because they're so excited about watching a super depressing movie. Like <laughs> we're, we're a group of occasional masochists and God, uh, I, I'll, I'll watch this. I admit I haven't yet. I have been watching extremely sad documentaries recently, including uh, Take Care of Maya, which if you're listening to this and you want to cry, watch it. If you don't want to cry, don't. Has nothing to do with animal rights, by the way. I just digress. So this will just fit into like my uh, masochistic documentary uh, marathon. Do you have anything brighter to tell us about? It's cheerful in the sense that you will be so, so happy that you do not eat any kind of meat, poultry, eggs, et cetera, because right. it really makes you feel good about that. There's been so much in the news this past week. That's one thing. Well, it's not exactly news, but it's like news. And then there was this Nicholas Kristof column in The Times, The Truth About Your Bacon, a terrific column from, you know, his columns are usually good. It's about these two undercover investigations, one from Animal Outlook, one from Mercy for Animals about gestation crates, about pigs, about the horrors. That, I, I'm not going to go into the details. Like, it's a terrific column. It's in the New York Times. All great. It's not in the news. It's an opinion. It's in the. It's an opinion column in the New York Times. Like, like why is this not news? It's, it's just not news. Well, yeah, I mean, I will say, however, that I do think that, like, opinion pieces as well, that they sort of fit into the category for me of, like, memoirs and and documentaries about people in that they hit the mainstream in such a way that they can in, ingest it so to speak without their defenses going up so much i mean even with news stories i think people's uh, their their hackles go up you know they'll be like 
uh, oh, well, I don't eat that kind of meat or whatever. But like when you're talking about an op-ed, I believe that people will be like, oh, Kristoff has an op-ed. Huh. I wonder if he has interesting perspectives. And I think they read it more openly. That's very generous. I think it should be both. Frequently, there is an opinion column written about a news story. It's really odd that this is an opinion column written about a very important story that the Times has not bothered to cover at all. But I hear what you're saying. I think that's probably true of a lot of people. And I'm just glad he's doing it because, well, of course, it's not the only place it was published, but the only other place I saw was on Vox. Well, hold on. I just want to say one more thing before you move to Vox about the New York Times piece. It was a little welfare for me personally. And I'm just saying that because I know a lot of our listeners will feel like that too. And I can certainly appreciate that it is in the New York Times. And the, you know, the end of his piece says, what I am confident of is that right now we're on the wrong side of history and that future generations will look back at videos like these and be baffled that nice people like us could blindly tolerate such systemized cruelty toward intelligent, if cantankerous fellow mammals not so different from us. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great quote. And it's a Agreed. long, a long, long column with lots of love, horrifying pictures. So tell us about Vox. You know, I'm not going to go into detail in, on it. It's, it's another great story from Kenny Torella. It goes into a lot of detail of on, on what happened in these uh, undercover investigations. It's really, really bad. So I'm not going to go into detail. I just thank God for Kenny Torella and the terrific articles he's publishing on Vox because they are just, you know, one of the few other places that, that really cover these issues in detail. If you do want to know um, more about exactly what's going on here, you know, which includes forced cannibalism, horrifyingly painful uh, conditions that these animals, you've probably heard a lot of it before. Some of it might be a little new. The forced cannibalism was a little new for me. It's just a like, why is this not news everywhere? But thank God for, for the people who are writing about it. Well, there's also the National Geographic piece. All right, this is crazy. This one is crazy. Activists call it rescue. Farms call it stealing. What is, quote, open rescue? National Geographic with this picture of, of this activist holding this poor little chicken in a, clearly in a factory farm. She's in Spain, actually. The article makes clear right away, as is appropriate for National Geographic, that this is a worldwide movement. Talks in detail about the, the Smithfield investigation and taking of the piglets that Wayne Shang and others were, were prosecuted for and acquitted. It talks about the, the rescue involving Alicia Santorio and and Alexander Paul. We had them on the podcast, of course, talking about it. Talks about these things in details. There is absolutely no doubt in my heart about the attitude of the person who wrote this article that they were on the side of these activists. So, you know, trying to cover all points of view. Gave that crazy quote from the uh, transcript in the DXE case in Utah where the, the prosecutor compared an injured piglet to a dented can uh, on a supermarket shelf, and it would still be stealing if you stole it. That was the most inflammatory quote, I think, and they chose to put that one in there. This is amazing. I mean, really amazing. They are really taking the side of the animals here. It doesn't get much more mainstream than National Geographic. I know. And, you know, I, 
I'm not sure. I certainly am just saying this from like the top of my mind. I don't remember any other stories that National Geographic specifically has covered. Like when you see the New York Times cover an animal story, you know, I'm kind of used to them covering animal stories here and there, but I love when it expands out to another another platform, especially one as lauded and huge as National Geographic. Anyway, it's just exciting to see something like this in National Geographic. And like because of the election stuff starting to really get into the news and all of the stuff going on with Trump, I, I like hate the news more than ever, which is funny because I work in news. But it, it is things like that, you know, like National Geographic picking up stories in a positive way, pro-animal way, I should say, that sometimes that's all the hope I'll get that week. And that is fine with me. But I think that our guest today probably will give me a nice dose of hope. So shall we get to the interview with Jimmy? Jimmy Videli is a farmer, activist, naturalist, consultant, and researcher who has worked with AUM Films, those are the producers of Cowspiracy and What the Health, Humane Party USA, and the Animal Protection Party Canada. He lives with his wife, Melanie Bernier, and five rescue cats on the small-scale veganic farm La Ferme de lobe Ecoy in Boileau, Quebec. And I, I apologize so much for how I just totally ruined all of those beautiful words. A full-time organic farmer since 2005, he is also the author of the recently released The Veganic Grower's Handbook, Cultivating Fruits, Vegetables, and Herbs from Urban Backyard to Rural Farmyard, the host of the Veganic Grower's Hour YouTube show, and the co-founder of the North American Veganic Certification Standard. He will be joining Marianne right after this. Moran's Main Street Vegan Academy has been training and certifying vegan lifestyle coaches and educators since 2012 and inspiring vegan businesses from bakeries to B&Bs to cowboy boots. The faculty draws from the best and the brightest in the vegan universe. Marianne and I have taught the animal rights and animal law class from the very beginning and will be a part of the upcoming cohort live on Zoom starting September 9th. Check out this unparalleled program at MainStreetVegan.com. And because you're an Our Hen House listener, use the code KINDNESS15 to save 15% on tuition. That's MainStreetVegan.com. And use the code KINDNESS15 with a capital K to save 15% on tuition. Welcome to Our Hen House, Jimmy. Thank you so much, Marianne. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I am so excited to have you because like many people, I wish I could grow things and I don't really have much confidence that I can. And I would like to see the way the world grow things dramatically change. And those are all topics. We can talk about it both from the micro level and the macro level, which is really exciting. But I'm going to just start with a specific question. This is really from the middle of the interview, but because you're in Canada and it will be a little out of date by the time people hear it, but I don't see any point in talking about anything without talking about the fires. Can you just tell us a little bit about what is happening, where you are and and how you're dealing with it? Yeah. So starting about middle of May, there's been almost 2 million acres that have burned in Northern Quebec alone. There's about 130 active fires and The closest one to us, thankfully, is about 200 kilometers north or 120 miles. So 
The fires themselves are not that close, but of course the smoke comes in and just like it did throughout Philadelphia and New York State and all on the Northeast. And it's a detrimental impact to those people out there that have respiratory issues, lung issues, if the plants can't breathe like they would. So that's what's going on. It's pretty bad. It's never been this bad so early in the history of Quebec. Usually there's only about 4,000 acres burned at this point in the season. So what, (laughs) mid-June? And we're almost at 2 million acres. So this is pretty extreme. But this in the context as to why, more than likely in northern Canada, it's because of massive deforestation from logging. We don't have massive deforestation in northern Canada from animal agriculture, but we do have it from overlogging quite substantially. I mean, of course, it's connected to climate, but I had not realized that it was exacerbated by logging practices. Yeah, because the more that we log, the more that we tear up the landscape, whether it's from animals or whether it's from mining or whether it's from logging, we create these sort of understory growths, right? And those understory growths, they grow very fast. But then when it gets dry, they become very dry very quickly. So this is where the fires will start. Then because the snowpack this year up north wasn't as good as has historically been, as soon as that fire hits the crowns, and this is mostly conifer woodlands, things like spruce and firs and pines, as soon as it hits the crowns, then it just jumps. And it's just heartbreaking for all the wild fauna that lives in these parts. So again, it's from anthropogenical sources that is causing these fires and who's suffering the most is all the wild creatures that live. Always, always. And, you know, I want to talk more about that and all of the implications of climate. But now I'm going to go back and start at the beginning rather than that horrifying but very timely topic. And so I was really excited when I first saw your book. I wasn't familiar with your work before that. And because I want to know more about veganic growing, and I am really not a gardener, but I do have a little yard and I'm trying to make it like a little better. And I found it's pretty hard. Like Nobody knows what you're talking about. And everything has animal ingredients in it. So let's start with definitions. What is your definition of veganic growing? Yeah. So veganic growing is the cultivation of food and fiber crops with the minimal exploitation of all animal beings. So in that we as veganic growers would not use any animal manures, animal byproducts that come from the slaughterhouses like bone meal, blood meal. Uh, we don't use any products fished out of the ocean like shell, uh, shellfish meal or fish meal or fish emulsion. We don't use urea from animals. We don't use any animal products at all. But veganics takes it a step further in that we also do not spray any kind of pesticides. Now, organic growing does, unfortunately, use a vast amount of organic pesticides to control insect pressures that are eating the crops that we wish to eat. But in veganics, what we do instead is we let the funnel and the insect community work our fields. So we plant more flowers, we plant more biodiversity, we create a system so that if there is say an insect like an aphid that wants to eat the juices from our lettuces, then we have a nice colony of ants or spiders or green lace wings or praying mantises that will then eat those aphids. Because in the natural world, there is an actual prey predator relationship 
in basically everything because they don't have the choice. Certain beings don't have the choice like we humans do to eat what they're supposed to eat. So a praying mantis must eat aphids. It can't just decide to all of a sudden eat fruits. But to go back to why this is important is because then instead of trying to control it with some sort of spray, which just destroys the entire balance that even organic growers are trying to create, the balance itself is then helping the crops that we wish to grow. And you've been farming for a while, for a long time, and in different places. And you have been paying attention to ethics in animals for a fairly long time, from what I could see from what you wrote, but you had not yet discovered veganic growing. Can you tell us a little bit about that trajectory and the evolution of how you went from paying some attention to ethics to really getting it about veganic? Yeah. So in between my farm in Arizona that I have, which was an organic farm, which I did raise animals for their milk and for their eggs, I raised goats and I raised chickens. And when I left that farm, I traveled around, I ended up in Montreal and I had a job as a volunteer and as a consultant on a farm on the West Island of Montreal. And during that time, it was like late 2013, all of a sudden I received an email from a longtime friend and old college roommate, Kip Anderson, who is one of the co-directors of Cowspiracy and What the Health. And his subject line said, what do you think about veganic growing? And I said, oh, that sounds great, but there's absolutely no way that you can grow without animal manures. And that was my stance. And that was in 2013. From there, I was linked with Keegan Kuhn, the other co-director. And then I was linked with an organization from Quebec called the Veganic Agricultural Network. And from there, I started gaining the understanding. And because Kip was convincing me, even though it still took me almost a year to become vegan, was convincing me that we can grow veganically, that we must become vegan for the animals, for the environment, for the planet. I was like, well, okay. And I knew that I was going to have another farm. I didn't know where at that point, and I didn't know what it was going to look like, how big it was, but I knew that there was going to be another one. And it just so happened that we found this place here in Boileau, Quebec in 2014. And because I was newly vegan just a couple of months before, we decided to go for it. My wife and I both wow. became vegan and we just decided to go for it. We're just like, we don't know. There isn't that much information out there. We're just going to try from scratch, no manures, no animal products, not raise any animals. And we're just going to see how it functions. And because I've done this, this is my second time I was like, you know what? I'm going to take really good data. I'm going to do all the research necessary so that it can then be replicatable later. Because if I don't, then I won't know. And who else is going to do it? And even though I didn't even think that I was going to be the one to write this book, The Veganic Grower's Handbook, it ended up becoming that way. And it was only easier. I can't say it was easy, but it was easier because... I had all of that data and all that reference that I had jotted down before. You know, I read the book. I mean, there's a text part and then there's the plant part. And somehow it escaped me that it was that recent that you went in this direction. I mean, 2013, 2014, like that is not very long ago. So that is really exciting. And it is really exciting that you wrote the book because we all hear about veganic growing. But one of the things that I think, especially since, you know, a lot of people listening probably really try to buy organic and there's a tendency to ignore or not be familiar with the many 
vegan problems with organic growing and the ugly reality, maybe not as ugly as, as some other food uh, topics, but still a lot of problems. You mentioned some of the things that are wrong with organic, but can you go into that, especially the manure issue? Yeah. So the manure issue is a big one because this is the basis of a lot of the fertility that organic farmers use to feed their plants. The way that the organic standards are written in both the United States and Canada is that if it is not available to have organic manure, then it is acceptable to use conventionally raised manure. So now what you're talking about is feedlot manure, dairy cow manure, dairies that are in stanchions manure. And these are animals that are also, they're very poorly treated. They are fed GMO crops. And what we have known scientifically is that GMOs kind of uptake in the body. So once they are in the system, even when the manure flushes it out, the GMO can still be there. We also don't know when something is sprayed because all GMOs are sprayed with an herbicide. So GMO corn that is fed to animals that organic farmers can use is sprayed with a glyphosate, which is a herbicide that kills the herb, but doesn't kill the soybean or the corn plant. And that's because the corn seed and the soy seed was genetically modified to be resistant to that specific herbicide. So when the animal eats that corn, eats that soy, that interestingly, then people eat. So you're eating GMOs too. If you don't think you're eating GMOs, you're eating GMOs if you're eating animal products. And you're eating all of that chemical because all of that chemical residue stays in the seed, in the grains that the animals are eating. So all of that ends up back in the manure. So what the study found, and I think it was out of Austria, what they found is that when they were using manures, from animals that were fed GMOs that were sprayed with this herbicide, plants did not grow because they died from the herbicide mm. residues that were still in the manure. But that's only one of the problems. The biggest problem that we have with manure, especially in the United States, is that it, the animal agriculture industry produces enough manure in just five days to cover the entire continental United States with an application that is basically six to 12 inches. Oh my God. So, yeah, it is nutty. And I wrote all about this. I did a bunch of reports for the Humane Political Party USA. So if you go to Humane Herald slash publications, you'll see that report. And it it was mind blowing. Like I had no idea. I mean, we knew that the manure was going in the groundwater. It was getting flushed in the Mississippi. It was causing the ocean dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico. But we had no idea that it was piling up this quickly. So if you think about that, where does it go? Well, you wonder why all you can seem to find in nurseries and hardware stores to plant your gardens is manure. Why agricultural extension universities, all the ones that promote organics or even conventional farming practices, they will all say use manure. Why? Because there's just so much of it. And that is why we're in the state that we're wow. in. So, yeah. And it's it's just one more, maybe not the biggest one, but one more income stream for the factory farm industry. It's putting together all of those income streams that makes them profitable. People talk about something being a byproduct, and I bet they talk about manure being a byproduct of animal agriculture. So it doesn't really matter. But it, it it's not a byproduct. It's one of their products that makes them profitable. I had no idea. So your point is that mainly all of this advice about growing with manure 
is so that we can get rid of some of the manure. I mean, that's the main purpose. But let's talk about the other side. Like, since we're talking about manure, what is it that makes for good soil? I mean, everyone is told that manure is what makes for good soil for growing conditions. And you point out that in nature, things grow and animals, all right, they poop. It's kind of occasional and here and there. So how does soil get to be soil in the right way? Yeah, that's very interesting. And before I answer that question, I just want to say that think of manure as a product. Let's just take a very sort of benign situation where you're talking about grazing cows. Let's say they don't even get slaughtered. Let's say they're raised in a sanctuary. And let's say they're grazing and they're eating the grass and then they're depositing their manure. This is exactly what regenerative agriculture is talking about. Right, right. They're depositing their manure And then that manure is then feeding the grass that then they eat again. Well, that manure has taken out of it all of the nutrients that the grass has, because that's what the cow is now utilizing to create its massive size, because cows are huge and can get very, very huge because of all the nutrients from the grass that they eat. So when they have their manure, there's basically nothing left. It's basically just whatever they didn't want to use. And it's not specific. Like manure can be tested from different sources and you will never know what it's going to be. Depends on how fast the manure came out and how much was actually digested by the animal. But let's go back to the question. So how does soil become soil? So my best example is to take a look at a forest, right? So if you look at a forest ecology, what you have is you have slow growing plants, you have middle growing plants, you have middle sized trees, and then you have really large trees. And if you live in the north, if you live in any kind of place where it's dormant, or even if you live in the tropics, what ends up happening is that when winds come, rains come, snows come, all of that plant material sort of dies back. And in the tropics, there's a cycle where the rains, it knocks off leaves, it knocks off tree limbs, and all of that just starts decomposing. Well, the soil itself is not actually just a dead ingredient. The soil is actually made up a bunch of living microorganisms. So there's no such thing as just dirt, really. It's actually little animals that are eating the plants, eating each other, pooping, doing that. So on a very, very small microscopic scale, yes, it's manure, but it's manure from really, really tiny, tiny beings that we don't raise and we have no control over. They just do what they do. And what we know, which is really cool, is that microorganisms change over the course of seasons. So even in California, there's four seasons and every season, the microorganisms change to be able to decompose what it is that is being dropped onto the ground at that point in time. And every region is different. So the microorganisms that live in the region I live in here are going to be vastly different to what they are in Hawaii or Panama or California or Southern Georgia. It doesn't matter. But as that goes, those little creatures, they basically biocycle all that plant and all that animal material that's in the soil. What we don't have in a forest setting is a lot of piles of manure anywhere. There's no cows that roam in northern forests. We do have deer and we have wolves, but I can walk through the forests around my home 365 days a year, and it would be rare to see a deer carcass. And even though I do see eastern wolves, they don't stick around that long. I mean, they walk, they poop, and that's it. So 
the manure that we have again is just that it's just that microorganism manure which it's not just manure it's the microorganism breaking down eating chewing all that plant material it's so crazy that we don't all know this i was reading george mabio's book recently too along with your book and they both brought home this idea that soil is what we live on it's what we grow everything on and we know so much less about it than we should at this point and it's so complex and fascinating we just think manure which you know as you point out like the minute you said that in the book i thought well yeah there aren't animals pooping all over the place all the time, and we have loads of great soil. It's just crazy that we don't know more about this and that, you know, you don't learn about this stuff in school. We have so much to cover and there's so much to talk about, but I want to hear about the farm. La Ferme de l'Aube. Is that all right? I'm so embarrassed to pronounce okay. French. I always feel like I'm screwing it up. But tell us about it. Tell us about how it started and what it looks like right now. In 2014, I planted garlic just basically by taking out some of the wild flora that was there and planting garlic, thinking like, okay, I'm going to do the most minimal amount of removal of flora that I can. Well, it didn't work really well. So after Welcome that, to my experience of gardening. Like, I'm glad to hear that things don't grow for you too sometimes. Oh, yeah. You, you know, it's not easy. I mean, one, you have to compete with climate. You have to compete with rains coming when they shouldn't or droughts coming when they shouldn't. And you have to compete with the flora that wants to grow better than anything else that you put into the ground. So, yeah. And if you don't have a fence or if you don't have a way to keep deer out or groundhogs out or any other little creature out that wants to specifically eat your radishes or turnips or lettuce greens, well, and you're going to even have more problems. So yeah, it's a challenge. It's a challenge anywhere you start. So for me, even though I had already been growing my own food for the better part of 15, 16 years before we came here, it was still a challenge. It was like relearning everything again, because the seasons here are quite different. Yeah. Everything's quite different. So 2015, we kind of started, we created beds. And really, when you're starting, you really need to create a system where there isn't any natural flora in your beds to start. Eventually, you can let it come back in. But if you don't take that out in some way, let it decompose in some way. And I talk all about that in my book, how to do that then you're not going to have a soil that is going to be able to plant your little seedling or your seeds. Because the thing is about wild flora is it wants to grow and it wants to grow where you live better than anything that you plant. It's a little bit sort of hypocritical to be a person who does agriculture because you're trying to manipulate the system to grow what we humans want to eat, but it's not necessarily what the earth or the land wants to grow. <laughs> but because we are human, we can't eat grass. I've tried just eating clover. It doesn't work. <laughs> there are certain wild plants we can eat, but we've created a diversity of food sources that we have seed saved from for a very long time that it's okay that this is the way that we work it. We just need to be diligent and be patient. And you need to start with a surface that's free of that wild flora. I'm so tempted to start asking you questions about my backyard. <laughs> 
instead of continuing with a real interview. But this is one thing I'm struggling with, and it's relevant to this question, is invasives. You talk about like, you don't like the word weed, and I totally hear you. These are just plants that are trying to grow where the native flora have, have always grown. But my backyard is, and I think probably people in urban and suburban areas have this problem too, is nothing but invasives, bindweed and, and things that are very, very hard to get rid of and that really do kill anything around. Do you have the same benign attitude towards them? And can you just pull them up and make the things grow that you want to have grow? Yeah, it's a great question. Probably the best way, and you'll see this if you actually try to go out and you start your garden and you start pulling out that native flora. We'll just call it weeds for now, for this minute. You start pulling out those weeds or those invasive... But- Talking specifically about the ones that aren't native, but also the native yeah, ones. Fine. But so, yeah. yeah, and you know what? There's probably a lot in a lot of regions that aren't. But it's all the same premise because now they are native. You know, I mean, yeah, okay, they're invasive. <laughs> they moved in. Now they do. <laughs> yeah. You can call them immigrants if you want, right, but right. they <laughs> They're no less native than I am. Yeah, see, there you go. And to be honest, your tomato plant is super foreign to your soils. Like it's absolutely the most foreign thing that you can put into the ground. Like the uh, soils anywhere in North America don't know what a tomato is unless you start talking about central Mexico. And then in which case you're talking about a tomato that is about as big as a raisin. So it's all the same premise. Uh, You can either were to take out that invasive and you see that intense root system, because that's the thing about those invasive plants is that they have that really incredible rhizome that the plants pop up from the roots pretty much everywhere. And if you pull that out, what you're pulling out with it is all of that good soil. You're pulling out microorganisms that have learned to adapt with that, right? So really what's better, and I know over the course of my YouTube shows and talking about it over the last couple of years, people do not like this at all, and I get it. But what I can say is if you put a piece of black plastic and you don't leave it there, you only put it there for about a month, and you put it on the patch just where you want to grow, not on the sides, not your entire yard, just where you want to grow it, and you leave it for a month, If you take it off, what's going to end up happening is that all of that flora is going to be decomposed. Then when you create your space with just a very small cultivator, which can be like a three or a four pronged handheld thing, or you could, we have a standing one, you just start pulling up the roots. And because all the bindweed or here we have couch grass is kind of already brown and dying, the roots are not dead but it's a lot less strong. Mm-hmm. So you just start taking that out where it is that you want to go. And yeah, it's a process. And we do it every year because every year, even though the way that our farm is set up, we have 50 foot rows. And then in between sections of 50 foot rows, we have about a five foot by 200 foot strip of just greens. So it's like clover and that same couch grass. And of course, at the end of season, we're getting tired and all of that starts wanting to come into the beds. So if we don't take that out, then eventually it'll just take it over. And if you've ever tried growing anything with bindweed or couch grass, nothing will grow with it. So start small and take out just a little bit of time. Just do a four foot by eight foot plot. Don't envision it as a as big as you need it to be everything that i need to feed myself but just start with a little section and see how that feels to you 
a four foot by eight foot piece of black plastic you can find recycled at a hardware store because most lumber is packed in it. So you just put it on the ground, the heat beats on it. It creates that heat in the soil, which is basically the microorganisms working. They start decomposing. And what's really, really cool is what we found here. Not only does it create a healthier, more fertile soil after you take it off, but we have it. We what we find is it creates homes for gopher snakes. It creates homes for mice and voles and moles and shrews, which are all a part of the cycle. It creates homes for ground beetles, for ants, for spiders. So even when we kind of pull it off and we fold it up and we put it to the side, those creatures they either go right back in or. They take their families and they go to another place, but it's so close. It's not even relocation. So again, it's about the most minimal of exploitation possible to grow the food that we want to grow. And I can tell you that if you do it in this particular way, you're doing it so much less exploitatively than any place you can buy it from, yeah. whether it's yeah. or organic. No, I love this idea and I love your attitude that you don't think of any of these plants as being enemies. I find it very hard not to hate bindweed, I admit it, but I'm going to try to have a better attitude towards it. Um, it has a terrible attitude towards me. I think it wants to kill me. Um, he's coming closer and closer <laughs> to the house. So, all right, I'm going to stop talking about myself, <laughs> my own problems in my own garden, <laughs> because I want to talk about how you produce so much food. You grow on half an acre. It boggles my mind. How do you like tell us how much food you produce and tell us how you pull that off? So here in Quebec, on that half acre, the most that we ever produced, our best year ever was 2021. And we produced over 5,400 pounds of food on a half an acre. A half an now, acre? On a half an acre, it's not very much. But here's what I can say is that I have done this a really long time and every plant is different. And as a grower who's sold to the public for over 15 years, actually, this is my 19th year as a farmer, so over 19 years, I know that if I'm selling my customers fruits, vegetables and herbs, they want as much diversity as possible. And in order to do that, that means that we plant as much diversity as possible. But by doing so, so if we have over 300 different varieties of edible plants that we're trying to produce and sell, we need to get to know every single one. So what I can say is the only way that we produce this much is because me and my wife, Melanie, have learned what it is that every single one of these varieties need. But by doing it in that kind of diversity, here's the key. Here's the kicker is that for sure, we're going to have losses every year. We always do. Like I go out there now and there we have a little problem with a gray cutworm. And it is the larva of a night moth that we like to have around. Moths are really important for pollination of fruiting crops. But they lay their eggs in the winter and in the spring they come and they just ate, I don't know, 50 of my small little cone-shaped cabbages, which we really like and our customers really like. But being that we have more cabbages being planted, which is called succession planting, not planting everything at the same time, we're able to sort of uh, mitigate the losses that we have, either from disease or from drought or from too much rain or from insects and get available harvests at different times of year. So this is what allows us to do that. The diversity, the succession planning, and the intricate knowledge of every single variety mm. that we grow. 
And I talk about that a lot in my book about like creating an observation log, creating a log where you document your journey as your own growing. So when you plant something, for sure, you're going to have losses. It is 100% assured, but you're also going to have successes. But if you don't write down what the seed was, why you think that was, what insects you observed, were there any diseases you observed? Were there any weeds or native flora that, or wild flora that grew with the plant that you actually didn't have to take out? Like we have that, that happens too. Then it becomes you a better grower. And that's a lot of what I discuss in my book is how you can, if you haven't done this before, how you can become really good. And if you have done this for 40 years, how you can become even better and produce even more than you were doing before. Yeah, it's fascinating. And the book, I mean, when you say that that's what you're doing in the book, I just want to make clear you're talking about the methods, but it's actually, as you pointed out, up to each person to act. You have to learn from your own land and from your own situation. Like, like nobody can tell you what's going to grow there, but you can help people understand how they can look better and how they can see better and, and understand better what their, their land is telling them. I mentioned at the beginning that you deal with this both on a micro level and a macro level. And I'd like to kind of switch to the macro level because it, this really brings up your idea about this kind of global idea of how we should get food and looking at the state of the world. And we have a few problems in the world. And for you, an ideal farm is a pretty small farm, isn't it? Yeah, my ideal is a really small farm. Uh, So my wife, Melanie, and I, we run the half acre by ourselves. We don't have any employees. We've never had any volunteers. It's specific because I wanted to see like how much size, what the scale was that was possible for two people. And what I found is any more than one acre for two people is way too much. And there are market gardeners and growers out there that are doing an acre or more. And then you start having tractors and then you need to find help. But what I really wanted to know was how it could be possible for two people, how much land would be possible for two people to cultivate and nourish themselves and nourish a good amount of the population. And extrapolating on that, I've actually recently wrote an article for an organization and for a magazine that I write biannually for called Growing Green International, which is with the Vegan Organic Network out of the UK. And I actually wrote an article called The Veganic Way, How Do We Envision the Transition to 100% Plant-Grown, Plant-Based Agriculture System? And, And for me, it is specific. The reason why I believe we should have a small farm approach is because, one, you can adapt to the climactic conditions more readily. If you have a loss, you can replant like right away. You're not not talking about 500, 600 acres of one crop. You're talking a few feet, 50 feet, 40 feet, or 30 feet of one crop. And if something happens, you can replant right away something else that'll come in so that, you know, so if you lose cabbage, well, you can grow, say, a mustard green, which the nutrient level is pretty similar. So you can go ahead and work it that way. But the other most interesting thing about small scale, and this has been studied and journaled around the world, is that there is very, very little waste on a small operation. Our operation here has 1% post-harvest waste. So if we produce 5,000 pounds of food, we lose 50. That's it. Now, most farms, because of their size and scale, 
will lose upwards of 30 to 40% of their crop before it'll ever make it into the hands or into the mouths of the consumers. So out of that same 5,000 pounds of food, now you're talking 1,500 or 2,000 pounds of food is wasted because it doesn't get to storage fast enough, because it gets rotted in storage, because it doesn't get sold after that fast enough. This is the problem with the capitalistic viewpoint of agriculture. Agriculture should not be functioning in this model. It should be functioning from the idea where I am your small farmer and I calculated that on one acre of land, I can feed 15 people year round. Okay, so this is year round. Like I'm talking everything from dry beans to flax, even some grains like oats, all your potatoes, carrots, some of your small fruits, all your herbs. Now, it's not 100% of everything you need, but it is a vast majority of what a vegan person would need and what a person would need to eat. So on one acre, we can feed 15 people year round. And this is pretty much anywhere because anywhere there are crops that grow really, really well based on regionality. So if we look at that system, then me as a one acre farmer, me and Melanie, we would feed 15 people, the closest 15 people to us. There would be absolutely no transportation costs. There would be almost no fossil fuel costs. We would completely eliminate the number one driver of carbon dioxide or carbon dioxide equivalents in the atmosphere, which is fossil fuel use. And number two driver, which is agriculture, predominantly and the biggest culprit, animal agriculture, right? So if we were to keep it on this really small scale and just feed our really, our tightest community, it would give us as farmers the income that we would need to live and it would give access to the people around us the absolute best food because really most people are buying their foods from the grocery store and we don't know where this is going. Some people are buying it from the farmer's market, but even those are in places that are far enough away that the farmer has to go and then the people have to go and there's still massive fossil fuel costs even though it's better than the sort of regional distribution system of getting food from the farmer to a distribution site and then to a grocery store it's not as good as just me feeding 15 of my closest neighbors or me and melanie plus 13 so 13 of our closest neighbors right but this would require a massive agricultural shift worldwide. I mean, we're talking about, and this is the craziest part that I thought about. So if you think about that model, in the United States alone, we would need 45 million farmers. <laughs> we would need basically a third or a quarter of our entire workforce to be in agriculture, which incidentally and interestingly is exactly what it was back in 1850. So yes, I am actually talking about a model that we go back to where we were. But the greatest thing is, is that we have technology now. We have innovation now. Yeah. We have more skills. Now. We have better seeds now, actually, than what we had before because of breeding by small, because we're a seed company too. So we seed select for the best sources of tomatoes or the best sources of carrots or the best sources of peppers. And other growers are doing the same. And this is becoming a huge movement right now in Canada, but also in the United States of young farmers starting to realize that they really need to start saving their own seed and then get that seed to small growers. So yeah, I believe that we need to go backward to go forward. This Somebody else had mentioned this before, but it requires more than just 
the want and desire. There needs to be a lot of help along the way. As we know, land prices are going through the roof. They're actually taking farmland in Ontario and they're wanting to buy up that farmland to build affordable housing. Well, I agree with affordable housing. I think it's super important, but not for the sake of land that is in agriculture. If we're going to do anything with agricultural land, we grow veganically, use half the land that we're using currently, and let the other half rewild so that all beings have a place to live and thrive. We can create affordable housing from all the second homes and all the cities that have vacant homes and vacant buildings. And that's where we can put affordable housing as we need to. I really love that, you know, sometimes the small farm movement drives me crazy because it's frequently animal oriented. It's frequently, quote unquote, humane. It has this image of going back to the past. And that really puts me off. But I really love your vision of taking what was good from the past, but doing it in a way that's very modern, that's learned a lot about what we're doing and with leaving out these really destructive parts of what we used to do in the past and which we're now doing at a level that is almost incomprehensible, uh, the destructiveness of animal agriculture. And I hope this is a movement that I mean, as you point out, there's a long way to go from where we are to there. But even though it would take a really lot of people farming, I think a really lot of people like to farm. It's something that people love if they can make a living at it and live a good life at it. Which brings us to an organization that I really wanted to talk to you about, the North American Veganic Certification, which is one of your efforts to kind of grow this movement, to get a real foothold in turning this into a movement and not just something really nice that you're doing. Can you tell us about that and the standards that are being applied and how people can join that? Yeah, so the North American Veganic Certification Standard, or NAVCS, and you can find us at certifiedveganic.org. We just launched it. My founding team of Susan Craig and James McQuaig and I founded this just at the beginning of the year. So we're really, really new. But it really is a threefold approach. First, we want to end animal agriculture forever. As vegans, we all want to do. Two, we want to transition to a 100% plant-grown or veganic, plant-based agricultural model. And then the third key is that we want to recruit and keep young farmers farming and on the land. This is, this is incredibly important. I will be 51 this year. This is going to be 25 years growing my food. This is my 19th year farming. And I can tell you right now, I do not have the stamina or strength that I did even five years ago. Well, you look and great, Jimmy. Because- I mean, other people can't see you, but I'm telling you, never would I guess that you were 51. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, so, but I do know that there is a, a certain amount of time that we should do this. And it's not just from my own experience. When I was working on farms in Quebec, there was a couple that were in their mid to late 50s, and he'd been farming for about 35 years. He was falling apart. He had bad knees, he had a bad back, he was having heart trouble. You know, this is just, it's because of the stress, it's because of the work, it's because of the hours, it's because of everything. So I really believe that in order for this to work, and my team believes this as well, is that we need to get young people into the movement. And the NAVCS is there. We are there to create that sort of consulting, advising contingent that will help keep people on the land and on farming. 
the standard that we created is very, how do I say? We needed to create something tangible so that when somebody looked at our website or when somebody wanted to become a certified veganic grower, they knew exactly what they needed to do to do that. So we spell out everything from how to treat the land, from what amendments you can use, what you can't use, what kind of barriers you should use, how you should deal with insects, how you should deal with diseases, how you should deal with uh, small mammals, even so far as how you should package, how you should store, how you should treat your employees, because all of this is important. We believe that not only should we end the exploitation of animal agriculture, we need to end the exploitation of all wild floral and faunal beings, and we need to end the exploitation of ourselves. Because agriculture is the most exploitative industry for humans on the planet. You know, we're using immigrant labor in the slaughterhouses. They're working massive amounts of hours in the fields in California without health insurance. And these are the people that are feeding the world, and they need to be treated fairly. There needs to be the slaughterhouses obviously closed, but those that are working in the fields and picking the fruits and vegetables that all of us eat, they need to be paid what the people that are citizens of that country yeah. are paid. They yeah. need to have health care. They need to have all of the rights of the citizens that are living in that state or that country or that province or wherever, region to region. So you can go, if you are a grower, and this is specific, we talked a lot about whether or not we were going to have corporate donations, we were going to just have individuals that could support us. Well, you can support us by telling people that there is this thing called certified veganic, which is actually the certification of produce grown in a veganic way. But we don't take donations and we don't take corporate sponsorship. And this is specific because we wanted to make this certification farmer run. So when we have our annual meeting at the end of the year, all the certified farmers then get to come together and they get to decide how things are working. Are there things that need to be changed? What do they want to see in the future? And then as the core team, the three of us or whoever else becomes part of the core team, then we decide during the course of the year how we're going to market it, how we're going to advertise it, how we're going to be interviewed about it, how we're going to talk about it and how we're going to promote it further. But we're also in a position where we were okay with it starting slow, building very grassroots and organic slash veganically so that everybody who becomes involved becomes 100% invested. And those farmers that are involved, or even if you're a small grower, let's say you have a small plot of land that you grow and you just want to have validation. You're a vegan person and you're like, you know, I really want to have a certification that says that I grow things in a veganic way because maybe I do vegan festivals or maybe I do other craft fairs or I do something where I want to promote what it is I'm doing. You can just say there's something out there or even as a small grower, we have a couple of animal sanctuaries also that have taken their manure, put it aside, used it for other purposes and are only growing their gardens veganically. So when they do farm tours, they can show the difference, which is yeah. a really neat concept. You have the animals that have their manure. They're actually using that in a very productive way. But then the gardens themselves are actually just grown veganically. So yeah, they can I love say, that. this is how, isn't that wonderful? Yeah. So this is who we are, certifiedveganic.org, the North American Veganic Certification Standard. We're here to certify all growers in Canada, the United States, and Mexico 
And our hope is little by little, we get the name out there. We are already starting to see people that have promoted it. I had a really, um, we have a farm that we're going to certify here in the next couple of months. They are from Slabbert Family Farm. They are from outside of Vancouver. And they just did Planted Veg Fest, which is a huge vegan festival in Vancouver. And they were there promoting veganic gardening and North American veganic certification standards. Very cool program going on. And so from what you're saying, I just want to be clear, since probably a lot of people listening, some of them are probably like me and just, you know, find gardening like incomprehensible or, or trying, but probably some of them are accomplished gardeners, but they're gardeners. They're not farmers, but you're almost saying there will be like a place for people who are kind of halfway there who grow a lot of food, but that's not their business. Even they will be able to get advice from and if they meet the qualification certification from this organization, because it's pretty yeah. daunting to grow veganically. Like, well, your book is a big help, but there's not a lot of advice. You know, when you go into a gardening store and everything, as we talked about before, has animal inputs and just knowing how to do it and what to do. Will this organization, can it serve those kind of people as well? Yeah, the greatest thing about it is if you go specifically to the website and you click on the veganic standard, you'll see right there exactly what you can use and what you cannot use, what we recommend and what we don't recommend. And then after that, if you have questions, yeah, contact us through, we have a web form there, contact us. We're more than happy to answer your questions, especially if you're growing. I mean, I really believe As much as I believe in the small farm, I believe even more in the idea that all of us should be growing some, if not a lot of our own food. Mm -hmm. Because yeah, it is daunting and everything is. Imagine starting a new job, a first job for the first time. Imagine going, uh, meeting your in-laws for the first time. Like everything is daunting. Life is daunting. No doubt about it. But if you do it, if you use what I write in my book, if you look at the North American Veganic Certification Standard, in the book, I also have a lot of other resources. If you go to the Veganic Agriculture Network, if you go to the Vegan Organic Network, you can find vast amount of resources and videos and information about what it is that you need to do. Now, like what you said very interestingly before is that every region is different. That was what made it so incredibly complicated to write this kind of book is because some of what I say, like snows falling, may or may not be appropriate in Jacksonville, Florida. But what's interestingly is all the techniques for growing veganically I created so that an individual could say, okay, composting, that makes sense to me anywhere that's universal, looking at insects in this way, looking at wild plants that are getting into my gardens in this way, all of that is universal. How to prepare your beds, how to grow cucumbers, how to grow kale in the back, the the 125 page crop profile section. So all of this information is there. And what's so great about it is in my, I set it up and my editors helped set it up in a way that was so easy that you could just flip to wherever you are in the season. You can go right to the crop. It is all there. Like really, if you're a vegan, this is really the only growing book you need. You don't even need to mess around with all the other ones that are going to tell you why you should use manure, why you should use animal products, why you need to spray for insects or pests, or why you should pull out all the weeds. No, you can look at it in a lot more holistic, balanced, harmonious kind of way. 
Yeah, and uh, if you do have to go to the gardening store, you come armed with a little information, which really helps because it's hard. You, you walk into these places and they're overwhelming, and everybody seems to know everything about everything. And you say the word vegan, and they just look at you like you're crazy. So enormously helpful for that. Yes, I, I totally agree. We'll put the websites in the show notes, but tell people where they can get the book. It's pretty easy to get books nowadays. <laughs> you can get them everywhere, and where they can get. The seeds you mentioned that we didn't get a chance to talk about it in depth, but you are now selling seeds and you can tell us a little bit about why they're good and also where people can find out more about the North American Veganic Certification. So starting the North American Veganic Certification Standard, very simply go to certifiedveganic.org and it's all there. And me and my team put together, it's there. Like I said, there's a web form. You can go ahead write NAVCS and one of us will respond to you, whatever your question is, whatever our skill set happens to be based on your question. Next, seeds. So lafermdelo.com, we have a seed boutique online. Now I have to say with all my trials and everything that I'm trying to do, I'm super not tech savvy, but everything is in French. So if you don't speak French, I went on your website, just Google Translate asked me, do I want this in English? And I said, yes. And it was in English. There you go. So See, you don't Translate. have to be tech savvy anymore. Like the computer just does it for you. Yeah, that's great. No, that does work. The only thing with Google Translate is you can't order from the English side. You just have to write down what it was you wanted in English. Okay. The great thing is, is that we have created it so that we ship throughout Canada. We ship to the United States. We can ship to the UK, ship to France. We can ship pretty much anywhere shipping is available. I've tried shipping to Nigeria and it didn't work. So oh. I'm sorry, my African friends, I, I cannot ship to you. What about um, Australia? We have a lot of Australian listeners. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I can try. Okay, um, we'll see. But we can see. It really just depends on how it gets there. I know that, but we can try, or we can always try. Anyway, so lafermdelo.com, we still have seeds available from last year's harvest, and we're going to start harvesting our seeds so every year it gets updated. Um, yeah, lafermdelo.com seed boutique. And, and these are not book. just any old seeds. I just want to make clear, we don't have time to go into what all this means because it was very no. complicated in the book, but they're open pollinated heirloom seeds, right? And that means they're very, very good. Yeah. So open. So some of the seeds are open pollinated. Some of the seeds are open pollinated and heirloom. And very simply, what that means is that when you have an open pollinated plant, you save the seed and the seed is true from that plant as opposed to a hybrid seed, which is a crossing by a plant breeder of two plants put together, say two different kinds of broccoli plants, two different kinds of broccoli species to create the hybrid. But if you were to save that seed, you don't know which parent you were gonna get. So that's the difference. So we don't sell any of those hybrid seeds. We sell just open pollinated, and some of them are open pollinated in heirloom. And heirloom is very simply the fact that it has been a seed that has been seed saved for basically three generations. And there's a really cool part in my book where it discusses all about seed knowledge, but I'm going to leave that to the book. I'm going to leave it that you have to buy the book to understand. I, I what agree. A seed there, there's so much I want to say now about how the plants learn what, what they need to do. But but no, we, we can't do that now. It's so interesting, though. I was fascinated. It sounds very airy-fairy, yeah. but it actually isn't. It's really how the world works. But that's enough. Yeah, of, yeah, we'll leave it there. <laughs> Got to read the book. Yeah, so 
So read the book. So where can you find the book? This morning, I realized that it is now available in over 20 countries, which is very, very, very cool. The majority of those countries, you can find them through Amazon in any country. But what I always recommend is seek out your local bookstore. Your local bookstore should have the opportunity for you. So if you have a local bookstore that you like, that you that you browse at, ask them for it and they should be able to order it for, yeah. for you. And that's always an if educational not, opportunity as well. Then the bookstore people learn a little bit about veganism. Yeah, that's it. And one of my major marketing initiatives back in the late winter in January and February was to actually specifically contact independent bookstores. Because for me, independent bookstores is where it's at. Amazon's going to be there, unfortunately, for the rest of time. But it doesn't mean that we have to shop there all the time. We can go to these independent bookstores that are still open, that are still fighting to keep them open. And these places are just vast resources of information. Yeah. They always and they're, to... they're starting to thrive. So really want to support that movement. I agree. Yeah. So you can go to your independent bookstore. You can ask for it by name, The Veganic Grower's Handbook by Jimmy Videlli or Amazon. You can look at it through Thrift Books. If you're looking to save a little money, they, they are sort of like a warehouse for different locations around the United States. Half Price Books has it. Both Barnes & Noble also carries it. And I just got a wonderful email from Chapters Indigo, which is the biggest bookstore in Canada. And they recently said that they are now going to stock it on their shelves. So nice. Whatever, yeah. So that was very cool. I was very excited about that. After four months of working on it to get them to do so. So anywhere that you like to shop, any fine bookstore, you'll be able to find it. And like I said, it's in 20 countries. It's in Japan, New Zealand, Australia, Finland, Sweden, Norway, Poland, Germany, <laughs> France. Wonderful. It's so exciting. <laughs> I can, everywhere. It's everywhere. <laughs> it's everywhere. The world is shifting. Thank you so much, Jimmy, for sharing. I, like I've kept you far too long and I actually am going to keep you a little longer for our bonus segment, but it's just been so enlightening and your enthusiasm is contagious. So thank you so much. It's my pleasure. And this is such a wonderful program, our hen house and all the listeners that you've had follow you for all these years. I thank you to you also for whatever your, your activism is and, and, and whatever work that you do and whatever part of your life that it's brought you. I know that you speak about veganism. I know that you're there for the planet, for the animals, for the environment, for us humans, for everyone. And without you, my book wouldn't have sold, but without you, veganism doesn't prosper. I think everybody listening to this is helping veganism prosper. And we thank you for this book to help us help do that. My pleasure. Thank you so much. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxiety surprising. Our first story is about what I talked about earlier in the episode, the release of Poisoned, The Dirty Truth About Your Food on Netflix. And when I watched this movie, it was number 10 of most watched things on Netflix. 
So, yeah, this is going to make a, a, a splash. I hope a big one. And they're having anxieties about it, of course, as you're not too surprised to hear. To watch or not to watch? That is the question. This is from the For the Birds column by Christine Alvarado on MeetingPlace.com. Is that really the question? <laughs> like, like, is is the big question that this movie brings up for people in the meat industry, whether they should watch it? Weird. They're just so odd, these people. She has a dilemma. She wants to be informed, yet she does not want to add to the hysteria of contributing to the readership drama. I don't even know what that means. What's the readership drama? Uh, and, and she's talking about the movie. And she points out that it's not solely focused on meat and poultry, but rather the entire food industry. And it's supposed to make us question the safety of our food supply. I prefer to call it drama rather than fact. I would just like to point out that it's not solely focused on meat and poultry, but I was very, very pleased to find out that when they talk about lettuce, they make it very clear that the reason our lettuce has is contaminated with E. coli, and you know, I don't think I'm ever eating lettuce again, to be honest, is because it's it's almost all from these, the Yuma Valley in Arizona. I think it's the Yuma Valley, Yuma, Arizona, and the Salinas Valley in California. And they're all they're they're right next to huge, huge, huge feedlots, and they make it very clear that that's the problem because there's no other way that E. coli would get into lettuce. It's from intestines of animals. Um, anyway, she goes on to say, "I'm going to come clean and say I haven't watched it." <laughs> so she's writing this column about it, about whether you should watch it, and then she admits that she hasn't watched it. She has seen headlines saying things like this documentary unwraps the stomach churning flaws in America's food industry and it explores the broken social contract between food supplier and consumer. And I would say those are great descriptions because that is exactly what this movie does. You know, it doesn't have anything to do with the animals, but the animals are pictured. And, you know, you figure at least a few people watching have got to say, well, that's a horrible thing to do to those animals. But the real point is, you know, that that our food supply, and it's hilarious because they have like incident after incident of people saying that America has the safest food supply in the world, which I'm sure you've heard and I've heard before. And, you know, they all say they like every every scientist on it, except the industry ones say that's just nonsense. I mean, it's, we don't. We don't even have close. Uh, so uh, she has been asked her opinion about this docudrama, as she likes to call it. Um, and she... She didn't know what to say because she hasn't watched it. She hasn't decided to watch it. She wants to know if other people are going to watch it. Like, really? This is the question? This is this huge movie about the safety of your industry, and you can't decide whether you should even watch it? But on the other hand, I haven't watched any of the other docudramas that have been released in the past either. Well, I hate to use the expression putting your head in the sand because it's an insult to ostriches, which is where they get it from, but seriously. I know our industry, she says, and I know how to defend it when it is being threatened by drama. Do I need to watch it to defend an industry I have dedicated a career to for the past 25 years? Yeah, you do. <laughs> like, what does it have to do with your career? That's just you've gotten paid by them for 25 years. And apparently you have ignored every accusation about uh, how dangerous the food supply is. And apparently... The accusations are pretty serious. You know, it's not just meat and poultry, but it's, I'd say it's 90. When you include the fact that it makes clear that the problems with, with lettuce are, uh, are, are from the meat and poultry industry, well, the meat industry in that instance, 
I, I would say 90% of it is about meat and poultry. The one ex- real exception is that huge peanut scandal from about, I don't know, 10 years ago. Like the people who were running that plant were, were like, they they were they went to prison for 20 years. I mean, they were just like horrifying. Like, I'm not saying people in the meat industry aren't horrifying, but it doesn't, you know, it's not quite that blatant and obvious. All right. I highly recommend that you watch it. It will put you off lettuce. And actually, it, you know, it says something about cantaloupes too and sprouts. And, you know, it doesn't really go into the fact that those are connected to the meat industry too. It's very brief mention, but, but I don't think I'm eating cantaloupe. I love cantaloupe. Why is there no chicken offered on Popeye's girl dinner? That's the question that Meredith Johnson is asking on whatagnet.com. She is really disturbed about it. Or girl dinner. I've never heard this expression before, but, you know, I'm not really up on marketing trends. Girl dinner, she says, is a viral social media trend that refers to a meal made up of multiple small side dishes. Well, you know, I guess I'm a girl and I guess that appeals to me. Would no boys like small side dishes? Uh, I don't know. All this gendering of everything. But let's not get into gender. (laughs) Often they look like a charcuterie board, but Popeye's created its girl dinner out of its already existing side items. Well, you know, Popeye's is kind of low rent. so It's not surprising that they're not having charcuterie boards at Popeye's. I'm... (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Popeye's Girl Dinner offers customers a selection. Macaroni and cheese, fries, mashed potatoes, red beans and rice, coleslaw and biscuits. And I have to say, since all of these could be veganized, I'm sure they're not, but they could be. That sounds like one delicious assortment of food. I would do that in in vegan versions any day of the week. But she is really disturbed. She goes through this whole thing about how all of these things are already side dishes at Popeye's. Like, who cares? This is her real problem. Others have called out the chain, a restaurant known for its chicken, for not including chicken on its girl dinner menu. Well, I couldn't be more thrilled. The only thing I'm not thrilled about is this whole idea, like the gendering thing. Like, it does mean that the boys wouldn't like, you know, this dinner. One Twitter user said, we're now reduced to quoting a random Twitter users. <laughs> that's not girl dinner. That's your family wanted Popeye's and you're the only vegetarian dinner. Well, if that's the case, then, then you know, I'm glad Popeye's is offering it. But what I'm really hoping is that a lot more people will, will notice that that sounds like a delicious dinner. And even Popeye's doesn't think that you need chicken in order to have a complete dinner. But according to Meredith, personally, I have no reason to go to Popeye's if I'm not getting their chicken. Well, good for you. You're in the chicken industry, so we're not really that shocked. All right, finally. Animal rights groups bring in more than $800 million in income annually. I really hope this is true. They have this big chart of all the animal rights organizations. I wish it was more, but I hope it's true. This is from National Hog Farmer, um, everybody's favorite publication. And they're reporting on uh, these reports that have come out from the Animal Agriculture Alliance. One is called the Animal Rights Extremist Web. And it exemplifies, according to this, this is a quote, how animal rights groups are strategically connected in many ways, including personnel and financial support. Okay, like who, why wouldn't they be? Like they're working for the same goals. Why wouldn't there be interplay among the, like this is an accusation of something improper? I don't know. All right, then their other report, the Radical Vegan Activism in 2022 report. That sounds like fun reading highlights efforts to attack animal agriculture and the true intentions of these organizations with quotes from leadership. And here's the quote that that this report quotes. 
No matter the animal rights extremist group or the tactics used, they all share the same goal of eliminating animal agriculture and taking meat, dairy, poultry, eggs, and seafood off of our grocery store shelves and family tables. This is from Abby Cornegay, who is quoted in the report. And I would say that Abby is exact. Well, I hope she's exactly right, because that is certainly my goal. And even if they're using other tactics that don't seem like they're directed at that, I sure hope they are, because that's what I want. It mentions that nearly one third of animal rights extremist attacks documented in 2022 targeted farmers and food workers, putting them and animals in danger. Honey, the animals are already in a lot of danger, I have to tell you. But aside from that, so what are the other two thirds? Like, I, I don't know. Then she lists all these uh Criminal actions, vandalism, 95 vandalism, 70 stolen animals, 60 criminal trespass, 10 arson, 9... Are, are we sure these are from animal activists? And did they actually get convicted of them because, you know, they've been getting acquitted of a hell of a lot of things these days? Anyway, in addition, this, this article goes on. In addition to demanding change through direct actions, animal rights groups are also attempting to force change through fundraising efforts, which help fund their various efforts and campaigns. What? Like, you know, if there's a fundraising effort in which in which we could force change and force funding, I want to know about it. I want information on that right away. They they mentioned PETA, which is apparently drawing in the money like crazy this year, um, which is all good news. And they mentioned the, the Accountability Board, that new organization formed by Josh Bach and Matthew Prescott, who used to work for HSUS. They front themselves as a non-radical group <laughs> and they invest in publicly traded companies to force environmental and animal welfare change. I, you know, I say this every week, but I, I, I can't help it. Like, I just wish we, we had the power that, that they pretend we have. And I wish the animals had all the power in the world. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for our show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be thrilled to have you join the flock by going to ourhenhouse.org slash donate and signing up for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you are welcome to make any size donation that feels comfortable to you. You can also support us by leaving a glowing review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Like us on Facebook, where you can also leave a fabulous review, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. Join our online community at ourhenhouse.mn.co and spread the word about the podcast to friends and family. The Mighty Networks platform, which again is at ourhenhouse.mn.co, is available to everyone, regardless of whether or not you're a flock member, though we do have a lot of robust information behind the paywall of the flock section. So do consider that when you're considering joining the flock. And if you already support us, thank you so much. Remember, if you become a flock member, you also get bonus content each week, an opportunity to have a one-on-one -on -one session with me, Jasmine, and you also get access to that aforementioned fabulous flock bonus area of Mighty Networks. If you donate $250 or more, we'll also send you a pretty fantastic our Hen House Brass Pin. So thank you so much to those of you who support us. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing the podcast, to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our logo and other graphics. 
I'm Jasmine Singer, and I'll talk to you next week. 